A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ National, presented by me, Alison Balance. A big congratulations to all the winners of the 2016 Prime Minister's Science Prizes, who this week took home a million dollars in prizes between them. The top prize, half a million dollars, was awarded to Richie Poulton and the team behind the University of Otago's Dunedin Multidisciplinary Health and Development Study, more often known simply as the Dunedin Study. The study's been following 1,000 children born in Dunedin in 1972 and 73. Richie says there have been plenty of challenges over the years, but what gives him joy has been making important contributions that help people. Well, the challenges are several. The first is ensuring that resourcing is there to support the, the work. The second challenge uh, is in uh, maintaining the, what I would call the integrity of the cohort, that is the good relationships that we have built up over the years with the study members, maintaining the uh, scientific team that works on the data they provide, making sure that's a a cohesive group. The third challenge involves uh, making sure that we uh, take the information so generously given by the study members and turn that into some very important and useful findings. And sometimes some of our best work struggles to get published, and that's the nature of science more generally. I mean, the stuff that really does upset conventional wisdom uh, often struggles, uh, and it's only in retrospect that you realise that it was groundbreaking or special work. The fourth challenge, and I'll probably stop, stop at four, there are more, but uh, is um, maintaining uh, focus in a context that is forever changing. In the New Zealand context, we are always trying to put out information that's of value to particular um, groups of policymakers and ultimately politicians, I guess. Uh, and uh, the challenge sometimes there is that you produce information based on extremely high-quality data that doesn't fit with their particular view or way of operating. And then I think it's the real test of you as a researcher. You have to stick by the data and uh, present what the data uh, shows without fear or favour. These are all kind of part part and parcel of running a long-term study. Um, I'll probably, I said I would stop there, but there is a fifth um, challenge, which is something I'm wrestling with right now, uh, and that is uh, making sure that we are continually replenishing the pool of researchers who have that long-term commitment. So a lot of challenges, a bit of succession planning there. There must be a lot of rewards, though, as well, and again, the long-term nature of this project. Yeah, the upsides are many. Um, Making important contributions that help people is basically it for me. That's what um, gives me the greatest thrill. The work we do is uh, really to respect the contribution made by the study members. They make those contributions because they believe it will help others. And that's where I find the most joy, um, personally, and I believe some of my other uh, colleagues also uh, think this way. It's when you hear stories back from people who have been helped by work we've done uh, that has ultimately been translated into policy or practice that has benefited them. That's my biggest kick. You've talked about 
results that were edgy, results that were controversial. What are some of the the more edgy, controversial ones, but that might also be some of the ones you're most proud of? In terms of just sheer edginess, I, I was actually having a conversation with someone last night uh, who was promoting the merits of breastfeeding, and I said I couldn't agree more. But you need to know that we did a paper in the early 2000s uh, which showed that, running against the conventional wisdom of the day, that breastfeeding did not protect against development of asthma uh, and allergies. And in fact, it may be a risk factor. Uh, and that was something that caused a great deal of outcry at the time. We weren't saying anything against breastfeeding per se. We, we, in our particular paper that we published this result in, we listed and lauded all the benefits. All we were saying is that it was not particularly great at protecting against asthma and atopy. That was the point of the paper, and it fed into a, an area of research about why people were having higher rates of asthma and allergy, uh, and it's, it's commonly known as the hygiene hypothesis, uh, and that is we live in two clean uh, environments these days, uh, and whilst breastfeeding was great in, in the days of old to protect against the, the natural grub that people used to exist in, because it's overly clean these days, and you get the extra protection from breastfeeding, it may result in a change in how the immune system develops, making it more sensitive to challenges later down the track. So that was an interesting experience, uh, which reinforces one of the points I made earlier about one of the challenges, which is you need to be strong and stick to what your data say. It's not about confirming the status quo, it's about pushing it uh, and extending it and sometimes changing it. Well, you've published more than 1,200 papers, I gather, from the study so far. What do the results tell us about that age-old debate, nature versus nurture? To me, and I'm sure to many of your listeners, it'll be self-evident that it's neither one or the other. It's the combination of the two uh, that matter. And so we were the first group in the world in 2002 to demonstrate strongly that it's the combination of specific variations in genotype, that is what we're born with, combined with certain types of environmental experiences that predict, in, in that, uh, the case I'm talking about, who became violent uh, and antisocial as an adult. And so we, we address that age-old problem. Why is it that some kids who are maltreated grow up to um, maltreat others, whereas a bunch of those that were maltreated do not? And it was the combination of variation on a gene called the MOA gene, monoamine oxidase A-type gene, uh, which produces an enzyme which regulates neurotransmitters in the brain, and having had experience of maltreatment that predicted who became violent. The gene by itself, fascinatingly, didn't predict a thing. The uh, experience of maltreatment did predict, but weakly, who became antisocial because it was predicting people independent of knowledge about what type of genes they had. The combination produced this by far the strongest prediction. So that moved the debate, the age-old debate that's been going on. If you go back to Greek literature, it's in you know, thousands of years. Is it more that we're a product of our nature, what we're born with, or can we be can we be made um, by our life experiences to a um, a recognition that it's the, it's the combination of the two, the interplay between the two, and it's a hundred percent of both. Tell me about self-control and the importance of self-control. This has um, become a very topical issue. In particular, a lot of governments around the world are interested in understanding whether improving or strengthening um, self-control in childhood could translate into benefits 
uh, down the track and for their population. And that's based on not just ours, but we, we produced a paper um, several years ago that showed quite clearly and probably as well as anything that's been done before that self-control during childhood, that is the ability to control strong emotions, People often think of negative emotions, but it could be positive emotions as well. To keep a lid on those, in the service of um, approaching a challenging task and persevering with it. So people with low self-control are the impulsive kids, the ones that can't concentrate or sit still, uh, that sort of thing. So kids who have low levels of this temperament tray, if you will, in their first decade of life, end up having worse outcomes across a whole range of domains in their fourth decade of life. So in our study, when they were 32, uh, they had higher rates of uh, criminal conviction. They had worse health, and by health, I'm not talking about just general health. We measured health in all sorts of ways, respiratory health, cardiac health, uh, gut health, um, a whole bunch of biomarkers, um, exposure to um, infections and the like. They also had uh, worse uh, financial circumstances, uh, they hadn't planned for the future. They were lower down on the socioeconomic uh, spectrum. Uh, they had higher rates of substance dependence. Uh, they were uh, represented in a group of parents who were not doing the right sort of parenting, which is warm, sensitive, and stimulating parenting. They were struggling with that. They had much higher rates of uh, time spent on uh, social benefits, uh, and the list goes on. Uh, and, so, and so it seems that... Uh, whilst there's no magic bullet, and, and I've got to be very clear about that, um, that if you had to pick one variable from the many in childhood that you could try and intervene with to improve that would have the maximum benefits across a number of important aspects of being a human, um, that self-control might be it. And the good news is, of course, is that you can modify or improve self-control skills. I, I always think of it like a, a skill much akin to, say, being good at cricket or being good at the violin. The more you do it, the more you practice it, the better you get at it. And there's now a surge of interest in types of interventions that one can apply very early in life, so before school age, to try and strengthen people's levels of self-control. Now, of the more than 1,000 children that you started with, you've still got about 95% of them involved in the study, which is pretty amazing. Yep. They're hitting 45. You're about to start a new assessment. Yep. They're, they're just hitting middle age. What are you looking forward to as your participants reach this milestone and continue to age? What do you think you're going to be finding? What are you going to be looking for? One of the ways of summarising um, the 1,200-plus papers in a really simple way, which is kind of impossible, but if I were to summarise it, I'd say that most of what we think uh, emerges in middle or later life has its roots much earlier in life. Uh, and that's, that's sort of a common law that applies to most of our findings. And so what I would expect to start to see at phase 45, or age 45, I should say, is the emergence of um, early signs of the problems that tend to affect people in their 60s and 70s. Uh, so we're talking about serious manifestations of um, non-communicable diseases, diabetes, heart problems, uh, lung issues, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and so on. So that's the first sort of level of uh, expectation. Sitting above that, and I think this is the overarching theme of the current work program, is um, an attempt to better understand the more generic process of aging why are we interested in the process of ageing? 
Well, because it's one of the most ubiquitous risk factors for developing all these problems later in life. There's something about ageing per se uh, that helps drive um, negative outcomes down the track. And so we are, uh, whilst we're not an old cohort, we have the ability to understand where people are at in the ageing trajectory. And we did some work on this uh, in 2015 uh, that quantified people's physiological or biological age holding constant their chronological age. In other words, everyone was age 38 when we last saw them, but people's biological age ranged around the age of 38. In fact, it ranged from 28 years old to 61. Which is a huge range. Which is a huge range. I mean, those are the outliers. So so I wouldn't want people to think that there's a whole bunch of people sitting out there in the 50s and 60s. Um, but what we did have was a spread around their chronological age. And that means that people on the wrong side of that ageing curve, that is, they are chronologically 38, but their body had gone through the wear and tear equivalent to being 45 or 50. We know that all other things being equal, these are the people that are going to end up using uh, services um, earlier than others and may end up being chronic users of those services. And these are the people that we would like to try and, with our 45 data, understand in terms of their life trajectory, how do they end up getting to that point by 45? What risk factors could we identify from birth up until the age of 45 that we could modify to try and improve, in theory, their ageing trajectory? In other words, how can we intervene earlier in life to stop people ageing poorly so that they end up living longer years? We all live longer these days, but the good years are years of vitality and happiness as opposed to uh, years where you're struggling and, and you're wondering, you know, what's the point? That was Richie Poulton from the University of Otago. Richie and the Dunedin study team have won the 2016 Prime Minister's Science Prize. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.